To parents who worry about inadequate nurses in schools, who are concerned with the moral and social development of their children, we have perfected an electronic data processing system. An electric... Well, what does that mean, Daddy? Electronic data processing system in the shape of an elderly woman built... A woman? Yeah, sort of a robot. We're going to go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. Welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And I'm Kevin. And I uh, hope you guys um, ate a bunch of ghost fudge and you wore your short long pants. Uh, that, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. hopefully you guys found your uh, perfect pair of tights. Yes, because I mean, you know, real listeners know real tights. Okay? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, we're, we're now past a young man's fancy. Uh, we're going to an old man's older woman's fancy. That's not the right way to transition to this. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, season three, episode thirty-five. I, I've already resigned myself to never being good at anything in the regards to the show of making jokes or pivoting to anything. Um, you know, it's just I, this is my my young my middle age fancy of thinking I could talk into a mic sometimes. Uh, yep. Yeah. So season three, episode thirty-five. I sing the Battery Electric, one of the awesomest titles ever for an episode of the Twilight Zone. That uh, that I can say. Um, yes, definitely. Based on the. Uh, poem with the same title by walt whitman um, which they make very clear <laughs> in the episode yes uh I, maybe before we get into this I, I we didn't talk about this before we started recording there the, there's some news uh th- that uh the cbs uh reboot twilight zone has been uh, uh renewed for a second season yeah so if you haven't already go check out the episodes we've been doing of season one over on our patreon because we're going to be doing some more next year yeah, uh, and uh, all those haters out there that, that were shitting on the show, it's like, there's another season coming. And there was something in the article about how uh, the day it launched um, that the CBS All Access app had, like, the most, like, a viewership. Like, for like there was, like, a spike. So uh, you and I have talked about, are people watching this? Someone is, you know. So good. I'm excited. You know, uh, this new season, we, we've enjoyed a great deal, bumps and all. And we, we cannot wait to talk about the next episode we're covering called The Wonder Kind, which will be on our Patreon. I cannot wait to talk about that episode with you. Um, so, yeah, more Twilight Zone is always a good thing. Yep. So, yeah, back to Icing the Body Electric. Um, do you have anything for oh, a day yeah, and date should, for this? Yeah, that's, the, that's what we do here. Uh, yeah? Air date is uh, <laughs> May 18th, 1962. Number one film, Bon Voyage. Forgot to look up what it was about. Guessing a boat. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, Seems like a safe bet. Yeah. It'd be bon Voyage, the story of a guy in a motorcycle crossing the country. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> his name is Bon. Uh, number one song, Soldier Boy by the Shirelles. Uh, nothing for the 18th. I found something for the 19th. 
Marilyn Monroe made her last significant public appearance singing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, at a birthday party for John F. Kennedy at the Madison Square Garden. The event was part of a fundraiser to pay off the Democratic Party's $4 million debt remaining from Kennedy's uh, 60 presidential campaign. Just think about that for a second, that they had to have this thing to pay off the debt where now everybody just gets money and they just keep it during elections at different times. Uh, yeah. Monroe was... So, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so that was right before uh, the Kennedys killed Marilyn Monroe. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, isn't that, isn't well, that a conspiracy theory? Didn't We talked about, actually, this is a few episodes ago in season three where uh, J. Edgar Hoover came to Kennedy and said, hey, there's a wiretap. Uh, I know you've been fooling around with this lady and she's been fooling around with the mafia, so you should probably stop that. So... That's right. Maybe that was the conspiracy theory that we came up with. Yeah, some some murky stuff going on there. Uh, yeah. Monroe was stitched into a $12,000 dress made of nothing but beads and wore nothing underneath as she appeared at the request of Peter Lawford. Uh, President Kennedy thanked her afterwards, joking, I can now retire from politics after having had happy birthday sung to me in such a sweet, wholesome way. Wholesome. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, Kennedy was filthy, man. Like I just as much as you know, he's held up as like, you know, the the American dream, right? Like this is this is success. This is Camelot. Oh man, he he was, you know, he was he was a dog. And it's like and but the thing is, he was kind of a charming dog. Like so you know, like oh well. And then the whole happy birthday, Mr. President thing, that has been you know, I think of Wayne's world. And I think of other things like the the bit when he's like talking, he's singing to Tina Carrere when she's in the bed on the phone, and he yeah. he sings it. So clearly, it's something that has uh, been been used often. Yeah, and I think uh, I think most people have uh, heard that rendition or somebody doing some sort of form of it at well, some point. Because I mean, it was well before I was born, and. I know about it, so a pretty famous moment. I'm just going to say, in a couple of days, I might show up to your house in um, about $30 worth of beads and nothing else and sing <laughs> Happy Birthday, Mr. President, to you in a, in a nice, <laughs> sweet, wholesome way. Just You don't know when, but that may happen. Well, keep an eye for our listeners. Keep an eye on the Instagram page. <laughs> you might find a, uh, a special birthday present for me on our Instagram page. Then. <laughs> yeah, and then they all they all throw their phones away at once. That like you hear the sound of of hundreds of phones breaking at once. What happened to our listenership? <laughs> yeah, I can see that now. It's like, uh, yeah, we were good until the whole uh, $20 worth of beads and, and, and a naked Paul singing to Kevin. Then it got a little, <laughs> that, that you know, oh, that was a line too far. Not all the jokes about how people die to helicopters or subways or dying trying to fix their trash compactor or whatever. No, no, no. That was all in good fun and good taste. <laughs> Bringing out nudity, no. Well, and then everyone broke their phone, so they have no way to listen to <laughs> us anymore. So. Yeah. All right, so we'll jump into cast and crew here. This episode's a little bit weird as far as the directing goes. Uh, two directors, and we will explain as we get into it later on with some of the difficulties on set. But the first director was James Sheldon, who we previously talked about all the way back in the episode, The Whole Truth. Um, also, uh, we covered him on Penny for Your Thoughts, and I think a few other ones mm -hmm. as well. For some reason, my notes end right there. No, I wonder why. I, like, <laughs> yeah. But if you want to hear our thoughts about uh, James Sheldon and his career, you can go back to the whole truth. Uh, the second director, also uh, we've, a, a director we've talked about before, was William F. Claxton, who we first talked about on The Last Flight and more recently, uh, The Jungle and the Little People this season. 
yeah. Uh, so some highs and some lows, and uh, I, I don't I don't necessarily blame either of these guys for this episode. So yeah, yep. Uh, and so uh, the big name attached to this episode was uh, this episode was written by Ray Bradbury. So I mean, a very famous American author. Um, a couple. Of, I mean, I'm not going to ramble off all of his works, but some that I'm I'm quite fond of. I love the Halloween Tree. Something Wicked This Way Comes, uh, Dandelion Wine, which doesn't get talked about as much. Uh, Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm. Always dig that one as well. Yeah, I, I I've read uh, Fahrenheit 451, uh, and also the Toy and Bee Convector, which is a series of short stories that he did. I mean, he always did collections. The guy wrote a lot, and so I. My knowledge of his writing in terms of like I, I, I know of it, but uh, the scope I haven't really like dug deep. Um, however, when you think of sci-fi, you think of Bradbury. like he is like is a modern master, right? So yeah, and he has recognizable themes that like it, he's kind of just it's known like, oh, that's that's kind of a Bradbury trope or something like that. like it he he's somebody like Serling where you can like recognize. Uh, things that they would do over and over again. Um, yeah, I I realized like he was such a prolific short story writer. Um, most of my knowledge of him were actually his like novels. Hmm. So I, I do, in fact, have a few short story collections I haven't gotten to. Um, I did read The Illustrated Man, uh, but there I think I just read the short story with the, that title. Um but yeah, most of most of my reading with him have been like full length novels. Outside of Dandelion Wine is kind of a anthology collection, but they're all sort of intertwined. Um, it, it's funny because like also his titles for a lot of this stuff is amazing. Which again, like I oh for sure, like yeah, something wicked this way comes is yes. just it, that, it's it's title. one of my favorite titles ever. And then there's one uh, was it All Summer in a Day is one of them, and I I've seen like a televised version of it. And it's this idea of like these kids that um, they it's like some future thing because it's Bradbury and they get to go outside and have like their one day of summer because of whatever, like something was going on with the planet they're on and they experience that rush of summer in a day. And it's the whole notion of like trying to fit an entire experience of a season in a day. And I, I, I find myself, I'll use that as an expression to explain trying to cram everything in all at once. So there's a lot of Bradbury that permeates that I may not have read, but his choice of titles and word usage is something that it's, it's very, it's very great. And it just sticks in your head and it just bounces around. Yeah. And, uh, he has a lot of storytelling. Uh, some of the stuff he deals with, with like nostalgia and going back to your childhood and everything was something that, uh, Bradbury and Serling dealt with quite a bit. And we'll, we'll talk about some accusations, (laughs) uh, put out there by Bradbury, uh, during their friendship and I, 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 I'm weary to say friendship, but uh, I would, I would say frenemies, frenemies, yeah, frenemies for, for and, sure. then, and then, then, um, and then just enemies. Like that's, <laughs> um, I don't know who to believe on, on the divide. I just feel like Sterling's always come across as kind of humble and Bradbury just seems always kind of come out guns blazing. So I don't know. Yeah. 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 And most of the articles that I read about their relationship together, it would, uh, it would kind of give quotes about things Ray Bradbury said and accusations he laid out about Serling. And then it would be like, Serling stayed pretty quiet. Like, <laughs> like that was pretty much all they said. So it, uh, it definitely is coming out looking better for Serling, but, uh, you can't take, you can't take anything away from Bradbury or Serling in this situation because they're both masters of their craft and 
in some way or another. But I, I do love uh, Bradbury, his sense of nostalgia and like especially with like the Halloween tree and everything like I read that pretty much every October and just he captures that like Midwestern childhood spirit so well in a lot of his stories and everything. Um, and seeing as Serling and Bradbury were both from small towns, basically in the Midwest, like it's no surprise that they might have some sort of uh, um, affinity for that type of story about going back to their childhood. I just want to um, believe that they're at like the same dinner party once. And at the beginning of the evening, you know, they were kind of polite to each other, but then like Bradbury was just over in the corner, just, just drinking and just like, it's just <laughs> ruminating. And, and then like, you know, someone comes over and was like, you know, don't do it. Like everything's fine. And then, like, I just feel like he makes a scene. Like, I just want to feel like that's the thing. I just want to feel like it just kind of built up over the course of an evening. And then they're like, okay guys, the party's over. Let's just, let's just go. Like, <laughs> yeah, so another aspect of uh, Bradbury's career I wasn't too I, well. I didn't realize I was uh, familiar with was his work in TV and film. I had no idea that he wrote the original premise for It Came from Outer Space. Hmm. I, um, I I didn't do as big a deep dive on Bradbury because I felt like he was kind of a known commodity. So I apologize that my notes for him, other than him being uh, uh, angry at times towards Serling, I didn't put a whole lot in here about that. Yeah. I just tried to pull some stuff out that might be connected because um, this was his only Twilight Zone uh, credit for the original series. He eventually wrote an episode for the 1980s series, and I think there was a uh, an episode that was based on one of his short stories. Um, and it was about a guy named Sod Rilling that was like taking ideas from people and then <laughs> got punished. And yeah, I don't know. Yep. Um And then he ended up doing a few episodes for Alfred Hitchcock's Presents and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Um, But one thing that I thought was interesting, I wish I would have had time to get to, but maybe this will be a good detour in the future. Uh, In 1982, NBC had the show called Project Peacock, where they were doing these made-for-TV movies. Uh, They did another version of the story called The Electric Grandmother. It's funny that you mentioned so, that because I mean it's referenced in the material that I'm reading. I think I've seen that. I think um, uh, as a kid, I think I've seen parts of that because when I was watching this episode, there's a distinct sequence in the factory that didn't happen here that I swear that I've seen, and I'll, I'll talk about when we get there. I, I'm pretty sure I've seen that. I'd be interested to check it out. It it I think it's credited as only being about like 49 minutes or mm-hmm. something. So it'd be a nice quick viewing. Um, I unfortunately didn't have time to get to it, but uh, we'll keep that on the back burner. Hopefully we can get to that one day. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, we're going to watch the electric grandmother. You should just tune in. That would be uh, on the edge of your seat viewing. Um, yeah. But anyway, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and as far as crew, I do want to mention that uh, this had music from Nathan Van Cleve, who we previously talked about. He was a frequent contributor to the soundtrack um, for Twilight Zone. Um, I'm trying to think of the first time we brought him up. I want to say perchance to dream because he was the one that brought the theremin into like common use. No, for, I, was was it, that? I'm not seeing him on uh, the credit for that. I could be wrong, and I probably am. Let's see here. Um, Midnight Sun, he did the conductor. Two, he did the music for. Um, 
Yeah, I can't, I can't remember because the rest, like, he's credited, but it was just stock music. Hmm. So it had to have been either Two or Midnight Sun because um, he was actually the conductor of the music for those. Gotcha. I, um, I am probably wrong. And my keyboard is now dead, so I can't look up the internet. So oh, I, perfect. Um, yeah, I don't know why that, like, <laughs> my technology's failing. I need to send away for an electric keyboard. That's what it was anyway. But anyway, yeah, yeah I don't know. But I, w- I wanted to mention Nathan Van Cleve just because uh, the music is probably one of the better parts of this episode. Um, so I feel like it would be it'd be a mistake not to <laughs> mention him, give him credit there. Yeah. Um, so we'll jump into cast here. We have Josephine Hutchinson, who plays Grandma. Uh, this is her only Twilight Zone appearance. And the only other note I had for her was North by Northwest. Yet again, showing up on our cast and crew here and that's my argument that we've talked about this enough we should cover this between seasons three and four i, I think that's i think it's time that we get to to north by northwest i'm in all right cool uh, uh, i have her, anything else for her yeah she was uh in 1939 son of frankenstein uh and then also gone with the wind oh, i don't know how i missed uh those two <laughs> especially gone with the wind arguably I, one of the most famous movies of all time but yeah I that's mean, fine but was it really that good no <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since i've seen it but it just what's what's the runtime on that it's um, it's ridiculous right one to two years i think i don't yeah, know that's yeah i, I don't finish, know finish get the around to watching that again like, <laughs> please insert second tape you know uh but yeah, yeah frankly kevin i don't give a damn about gone with the wind so we can move on <laughs> All right, so we have David White, who plays George Rogers, and we talked about him all the way back in the episode A World of Difference. Mm-hmm. So if you want to talk about, uh, hear us talk about David White, you can go back there. Then we have Vaughn Taylor, who plays the salesman, who was in the episode Time Enough at Last all the way in the first season, uh, who plays Mr. Carsville, which I believe is the bank manager. I, sounds right. That right? sounds right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll go with that. Uh he was also in the episode Still Valley we covered, and he'll be in two future episodes of The Twilight Zone. Yeah, he was uh, Teague in Still Valley, so he was the main guy. And yeah. credit that, like, I, whenever I went, was doing my research for this after, I'm like, is really? Is that the same person? Like, completely, I just, he looked like two different people. And the way he carried himself here was, I mean, not that I expected, like, an old gruff Confederate soldier to try to be selling grandma parts, but, like, I was. I was taken aback. I was like, that can't be the same guy, but it really is. And so credit to him. Yeah. Yeah. He was similar to his episode. If he was the bank manager, mm-hmm. if I'm recalling that correct, he was pretty similar with the salesman role in this. Um, next up, we have Doris Packer, who plays Nedra. This is her only Twilight Zone appearance. And we'll talk about her and where she came from <laughs> as we talk about the about problems with production. About, about why on. she's here, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we have Charles Herbert, who plays Tom Rogers. And I actually have quite a few notes uh, about him. This is his only Twilight Zone appearance, but he was also in the Serling episode of Playhouse 90, Requiem for a Heavyweight, that we've hmm. talked about frequently on the show. Um Two episodes of One Step Beyond, William Castle's 13 Ghost from 1960, the original, and a handful of sci-fi movies, the Vincent Price, The Fly, um, Colossus of New York, Monster That Challenged the World. So uh, he didn't have a ton of credits, but some interesting stuff in there. Yeah, you had more written down than I did. I wrote The Fly and 13 Ghosts. So yeah, some very, very fun genre stuff. 
Yeah, I was just excited to see they popped up in the Requiem for a Heavyweight. Mm-hmm. I didn't even pick up on that, so good good call. Uh, just a couple more. We have Veronica Cartwright, who plays Anne Rogers, who, uh, Paul, you probably know her most for being Lambert on Alien. Yeah. Uh, she's she's the not Sigourney Weaver in that film. Uh, I like how I said on Alien. On like Alien. It was a TV show. Yeah, on Alien, the ongoing <laughs> saga. Uh, NBC's Alien. Alien. Uh, yeah. So um, Alien, perfect film. Like literally a perfect film. I, I defy you to find you know problems with that. Uh, she was originally going to be Ripley, and then they brought Sigourney Weaver in. So think about the career uh, trajectory of both those actresses. Not that she didn't. She still has a great career, but. Sigourney Weaver was kind of on the way up, you know? So, uh, but I think I, I, I like her in that she has a distinct look. And when I was watching this episode, I I was like of the three child actresses, like she was the best and you could see why. Yeah. I would argue, uh, she might be the best actor in this episode. I said, said actresses like there wasn't like a little boy actor. I'm sorry. Of the, of the three children playing their roles. I just implied that he was a girl. That's not what I meant, but yeah, she was the best. I, w- I would even give it to her over the adults in this episode as well. I, I, um, I think the table full of eyes is probably the best actor. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, that's that's mean. <laughs> um, so Veronica Cartwright, also uh, in the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Witches of Eastwick, uh, The Birds, uh, one episode of One Step Beyond, and this was her only Twilight Zone appearance, though. Yeah, I, that's you have more than I do again. So I, I wrote down Alien. I thought that Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Like, but think about that year for her, though. That was those were both 78. And those are very, very important, like, you know, like high watermarks for in a lot of ways for sci-fi horror. Yeah, great movies. I love the 1978 Invasion. Um, I I absolutely love that movie. So I was excited uh, to see her pop up in this. So two more. We have Dana Dillaway, who plays Karen Rogers. Um, she was Maggie in One for the Angels. So yeah. We previously talked about her all the way back in that one. Um, then we have David Armstrong, who plays a very small role as the <laughs> van driver. Uh, but I wanted to bring him up because he was in To Serve Man as an uncredited role as a uh, security guard. And he was also in The Tradens. And he's going to be in one more episode all the way in season five. The very famous Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Yeah, he's kind of like uh, like Robert McCord Jr. Like, you just don't know where he's at. Uh, so, um, I had, uh, there's also Judy Morton, who is older Karen. Um, oh, actually, uh, Susan Crane is older Anne. I just kind of mentioned because she was in two episodes of Hawaiian Eye. So, I'm going to make sure oh. that we represent that. Uh, Judy Morton is older Karen. Uh, only Twilight Zone episode. And there's trivia. This trivia I found on her IMDb page. And this, again, like I don't understand the lengths people go to put these things here, but whatever. <laughs> Judy was born one year to the day after World War II began. whoop shit I don't know why cool. that's important. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you know, I was born like 40, 50 years plus you know, after the start of World War Great. Is that, is that going to be my IMDb? You know. Paul, Paul was born one year after Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf came out. Like, why is that important? Great job. Yeah. Great job, Paul. <laughs> that Thanks. album would have come out yeah. if it weren't for you uh, being born a year after it. So, good job. Yeah, thanks. I, don't, whatever. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I think it's a weird thing. I guess I'm implying that uh, World War II, uh, 
World War II wouldn't have happened if she wasn't born a day after. <laughs> well, she, she was I'm born one year that. to the day after it began. So it was like, you know, oh, her parents, okay, her parents failed in getting busy to stop World War II from happening. I think I blame them. So had she been born before World War II began, it would never would have occurred. Uh, and uh, the 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 what was it the um, the cleaning lady wouldn't have let the devil out of the closet, and it never would have happened. That's what we know. We know from the Howling Man. This is all connected. Not I need really. to get a few movie roles so I can get an IMDb so I can just have you submit like ridiculous trivia for me. Have I ever told you that I am on IMDb? Did I tell you that? Oh, well, uh, keep an eye on Paul's IMDb page because there might be some trivia popping <laughs> can, up. There, can so. I tell you? Can I tell you what I'm credited as? Like, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. You're I like there's look up like miscellaneous crew every click on me. I have like two credits. Uh, one of them is an Avengers Endgame. No, that's that's not true. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna assume you weren't in Street Dance Two and Street Dance 3D. Um, maybe I don't talk about that part of my life. <laughs> um, the Rapture and the Losers <laughs> have a junkyard. Yeah, what is my credit? And the Losers have a junkyard. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I wonder if I can. Uh... No, but like I have an act. I actually have a character name. What is my character name in the short film called The Losers Have a Junkyard? Make sure oh, the listeners on. know this. I just uh, I just broke everything. Uh, <laughs> Paul is referred to as loser number six. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you're a regular uh, Robert McCord there. <laughs> I, I think my elbow is in that film somewhere. So, uh <laughs> Yeah, that that's the film that um oh uh, what's his name um from Troma the the big guy I'm blanking on him right now oh Michael Hertzman or no, uh, um the other one um the one that's the big guy behind Troma uh shoot I thought uh, it was Michael Hertz no something um, like that uh, Larry not Larry um, oh Larry Longstreth. No, yeah no no that's him. the director he's the director yes but um uh, Lloyd Kaufman. Oh, That's he's it. not the big guy. Lloyd Kaufman's a small, uh, older gentleman. No, I meant big guy as in like, in, like you know him from Trauma. Oh, I okay. Like, I thought you were talking about the in, physically big in, guy because there's a, what's his name? Uh, isn't it Michael Hertz that's always on there? Maybe. But no, Kaufman was in that short. So he's my Kevin Bacon connection to everything like because he's in everything so i'm like if you play the kevin bacon game with me because of him i'm like three steps away from like every celebrity it's ridiculous like because of that one tiny credit i can use me and try to prove my validity to the world like that doesn't matter because i'm loser number six god damn it <laughs> yeah michael hertz is the yeah. other guy sorry uh, i was referring was like, to when i said the big, big guy at trauma I, I meant big as in like you know like known, not as because no, no, no. He's a very <laughs> well. No, everybody boy. knows Michael Hertz because yeah. he was in all of the sh- like intros um, before all the DVDs. Like he was always in those little skits that you do with Lloyd Kaufman. But Lloyd Kaufman's a very he's a very small man, but I, he's big. You know, that's a big personality. <laughs> like I'm connected to the Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy by two steps, if you think about it. So yeah, yeah. If you guys want autographs with me as the guy who's connected vaguely to some stuff in Hollywood, I'll be around. Yeah, so me, that does it for cast and crew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Paul was not in this episode, but he was in Losers Have the Junkyard. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, I did not need to make this about me, but it's important that people know that I'm loser number six. So, 
No, it just I, I'm going to have to get a premium IMDb account now so I can add ridiculous trivia about you on your page. Well, do you remember when they used to have like um, uh, the comments threads, like people would post topics in IMDb? They took it all down. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, had, I had a friend of mine that would like post like ridiculous like topic questions of like rumored <laughs> to be an Indiana Jones five like question mark like this whole <laughs> whole thing just to cut like to just constantly rib me that like I you know so yeah anyway I'm not famous but I have an IMDb page so that proves anybody can have one yeah I don't have one so you're one step above me yeah you, well so. I, I'm connected so if you want if you want an N. <laughs> I'll just call up Hollywood and be like, listen, this is loser number six. Can I please speak to your stunt coordinator? Here's a guy that will fall out of the I building. Found, I found loser number seven. <laughs> uh, can we bring him on? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that's your cast and crew. That is not me for uh, I sing the body electric. This took a weird turn. I apologize. <laughs> I love it. All right. So we'll let uh, Sterling take it away and we'll get into this plot question mark. They make a fairly convincing pitch here. It doesn't seem possible, though, to find a woman who must be ten times better than mother in order to seem half as good, except, of course, in the Twilight Zone. I like that Sterling, knowing his relationship with uh, Bradbury, I feel like he's like, can I, 20 seconds on camera, I'm out. Like, can I just, I'm going to sit at a desk, you guys got me one take, we're done. Like, I feel like that's kind of where we're at. Um, I did like his introduction there, though. I did. Um, I did too. N- not not necessarily what he wrote, but uh, how they visually introduce him in this episode. Yeah. So yeah, let's just get into it. Uh, we we have we meet uh, uh, George Rogers' uh, father, who who works too much, I guess, and they, he had recently lost his wife in like the past year. He is getting chewed out by his like a mother in law, I think it is, um, Nedra who is basically saying these kids aren't being raised right. They need more attention. Um, Anne is like, she's weird. (laughs) That's basically what they say. And that, you know, if he doesn't like, you know, straighten himself out, she's going to do something. And she just like, she's just a bitch and just tears into him. Like, I don't like I'm, you have you, you've talked to me about your family. You seem to have a pretty big family that you like and you hang out with them and your in your wife's family. Is there anybody like on the edges that you're just like, all they want to do is just point out like all the flaws of the family and feel justified to do so. Cause that's Nedra. Yeah. I mean, I, I know the character. We not really like, <laughs> I don't know if your family listens to this. I don't want people, I don't want you to name names. I'm sorry. I realize I put you on the spot. Like tell me specifically. Yes, specific your family names. judges everybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I don't, I don't necessarily have anyone like that in the extended family that I see most of the time. So, it's uh, but obviously I know the character. I've been around other families and stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, had, I don't live I, in a bubble. I understand oh, this. I had an um, aunt that was this woman to a T that you're just like, all right, thanks. I'll 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 I'll, I'll put that. I'll, I'll write it down. I'll consider it later. Thank you. That's <laughs> you know. Yeah, but I mean, she she's basically threatening him that, that like you're not raising your kids right. They need a mother figure and. Uh, we're going to take away these kids if she doesn't outright say that, but she's kind of insinuating that. And the whole time they're having this argument, all the kids are listening in down the stairs. And that's kind of how you're introduced to the episode is them sneaking down the steps and listening in. Well, I like, um, that, I like that Nedra tells them that like a year is like, you know, basically she's like, you need to get your shit together. It's like they've lost their mother and he lost his wife. Like you can't put a timetable on adjustment to that. 
you know, but she, yeah. she's like, Nope, you're, you know, it's a year and you got to do this. And then she, she tells the kids that they're unhappy that like she never well, that's asked the them. thing. She yeah. catches them listening in and she turns and she's like, well, I might as well say it to your guys face now and just tells them like, you guys are unhappy and terrible kids and I'm leaving you. <laughs> like <laughs> I, not that I'm not quoting her exactly, that's, but that's well. pretty much yeah. what she's saying to them. Yeah. So then, um, the, you know, as she leaves the, the father who, you know, well, it's, he, I'm sorry, she does ahead. kind of feign some, uh, a little bit as she keeps saying like poor dears, like poor Anne, poor dears as she's leaving. So she does feign like that. She cares about these kids, but she's so brutal to them up until that moment. Yeah. Like, but she, what, I, I feel like she says that her? to basically slap the dad in the face on the way out the door, you know? And then the yeah, whole thing of yeah, like, I could see that. And then, then he was just like, yo, like, yo, well, like basically she's like, I'll see you later. And he's like, yeah, I'll see you later. Like the whole, like, yep this is your weekly dress down. I'll be back next week, you know, type of thing, <laughs> which ultimately where this episode goes, it would have been nice to have her come back and kind of be put in her place. Uh, but that she, when she leaves, that's it. Nedra's out the door. Literally, uh, she comes in, you know, bitches all over the place and leaves. And that kicks off the episode. It's yep, almost so. as if they shot that again, but afterwards, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. Um, so the dad kind of lays it out and he's like, yeah, you know, um, she is going to try and take you guys away if we haven't figured this out because I'm too busy to take care of you or so that's what they think and everything. And she asks, he asks the kids like, are you guys unhappy? And they all say no. And they give him hugs and he, he starts saying like, you know, I do need to find some guidance for you guys. I'm not around as much and, um, you need a mother figure in the house somebody who can be there for you. Um, and on the, on that spot at that moment, Tom inexplicably brings down a modern science magazine. It has an article about, I sing the body electric, this project from, uh, what was the studio? Like I have a facsimile or something like light. I don't know. Um, yeah. Fa- facsimile, uh, LTD yeah, uh, and real doll. LTD is what they, that's the name of the company. No, that's, that is not true <laughs> at all. Um, so they are pretty much making robots in the form, as you heard in our intro this week, uh, in the form of elderly women. <laughs> so, specifically but, but when you say uh, that out loud that sounds stupid i don't like <laughs> it, it, it does <laughs> oh yeah and so he's like well maybe you know and then there's a, there's a there's a bit where um Anne is like oh they can make a person that looks like or make a robot that looks like a person and he and the dad's like well yeah she's like that doesn't sound too good i'm like yes that's probably the right thing to say yeah um, and Anne's on top of this from the get-go like this is a bad idea when she's the one that they, they say that she's having the, the biggest struggle with her mother passing away. So she's always apprehensive and always kind of like the one that is like more questioning of everything, which credit to her that th- this is the right way to be for all this episode and until the end. And we'll talk about that. Yeah. But I just, this scene is just awkward because <laughs> just the way Tom enters, like I have the solution in this magazine here and presents it to the dad and it just, <laughs> 
he reads the article and explains what the episode's going to be from that. From <laughs> that <laughs> like, on. It so it's just it's it's very uh, convenient. It is. Would it have been great? But like, Dad, here's the answer. He's like, X-ray specs. You can see through walls. Yes. We'll order a <laughs> pair of these. These will solve all the problems. You know, sea monkeys. Who would have thought that would be the, the solution for our family issues? No. So <laughs> they uh they decide. Yeah, yeah. This is when the Serling uh, <laughs> yes. opening starts. So they pan over. And uh, Serling's sitting at a desk, and he's reading that issue of Modern Science, and he gives his, like, five-second intro to the episode. <laughs> Which, I mean, you're right. I do like him just kind of kicking behind the desk and reading the magazine and just smoking a cigarette and talking about it. It's it's a fun intro for him, and I, I do like that. Yep. Yeah, so they decide to do this, and they're going to <laughs> facsimile LTD. That's the next scene there. And uh, I do like... Th- the introduction of this I, I don't know if I want to call it a factory storefront yeah th- this is my favorite part of the episode because of like a site the the imagery and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second is so surreal and nightmarish I'm like oh we're this is going to get crazy and and then it kind of doesn't but the imagery here like I however I feel about the episode and we'll we'll get there when we get there I normally only take like five screen captures for like an episode. I kept pausing like every couple seconds to grab something new because there's so much weird going on in the showroom. Yeah. So they, they get to the outside of the storefront and um, he rings the doorbell and a voice comes out. He's like, Oh, we've been expecting you. And the door opens by itself. Well, it actually just kind of like dematerializes. It's like, you know, like a star Trek uh, thing or whatever. Yeah. I, I just thought it kind of slid into the wall or something. Well, the first time um, it, it, it fades into yeah, exists. The second time when they're leaving, it closes shut. I'm like, oh, you couldn't afford another fade out. But whatever. <laughs> I'm not. I shouldn't yeah. question the door logic of this episode. Yeah. So whatever. The the door dematerializes or slides open. Whatever. Yeah. They go in and it's just this pitch black <laughs> void that they're standing in. <laughs> and I love that. Like they're the only thing that are lit and it's kind of backlit. Um. And then all of a sudden the salesman shows up. Yeah. Like, wouldn't it have been better to have like Salvador Dali there, like, at, like showing everything going on? Cause I feel like this has been his I landscape. Mean, it's, it's not I mean, that far we're off. Pretty close. Yeah. Like <laughs> Vaughn Taylor, uh, as the salesman is pretty close, uh, visually to Salvador Dali. Yeah. So he, um, he's so upbeat being like, okay, welcome. And, and you know, here's all the different, he, he walks them through these various tables of, of, body parts and the, and the, the showroom lights will turn on uh, whenever they go to the next thing. So at first you don't know what's going on. And the first thing you see is this table full of eyes, but their eyeballs and these flower blossoms, but the way it's shot in black and white, it looks like these black roses with eyeballs in them. And it is the most disturbing thing I have ever seen in the twilight zone. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's definitely jarring and, all the tables because they go from the eyes to the hair to the ears, which I thought was weird. And then you get the arms sticking out of the wall, which remind me of like Roman Polanski's uh, um, uh, repulsion with the scene with like the arms coming out and grabbing her in the hallway. Um, it, it's just it's very weird. And then they have the mannequin bodies, basically. Um, for the different body types, yeah. Um, yeah, for the tall, short, he has a whole line about like any anything you want, you know. Well, so that the, the I'll do the brief aside here about the Electric Grandmother short film that we were just mentioning. This is why I think I've seen that because there's a bit when the kids are in that kind of like 
production area where instead of showing mannequin bodies, there's these shadow silhouettes that show up. Like they're just kind of passing real quick and they show these outlines of body types and they tell the kids like, well, pick, pick which body type that you like. And it was more of like a, like a visual outline that would flash in front of them as opposed to like shadows on the wall versus like yeah. mannequin things. And as much as my memory has been faulty about certain things in the past <clears throat> robot jocks, I'm pretty sure I've seen the electric grandmother because that's an oddly specific thing to remember. That's not in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Which sounds like a cooler thing. Um, I mean, it, 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 but, it was what it was, but it's better than picking like, well, that that's a fat mannequin. I want that as my grandma. That, I don't know. It's all this whole thing. The way the kids are walking around and the little boy, they, they, God bless him. He's not a good actor. And they give him the lines talking about like, you know, how the eyes look like these was it brown Aggies that he's like, I could win any game with these. I'm like, they're eyeballs, not marbles and he just keeps obsessing about the eyes and the other the other sisters obsessing about the hair and Anne's having none of this rightfully so because this is a, a showroom of horrors yeah so they find out that they can do they can pick the pieces out and they shove them down the chute <laughs> and yeah. yeah which is terrifying and out comes uh whoever they made and it's going to be their new uh mother figure in the house or whatever uh, their electric grandmother. Uh, so <laughs> I love there's also when they're picking out the voice for it, the first voice oh, yeah. that they turn on <laughs> is nightmarish. It's, <laughs> it's terrible like, sounding. Yeah, it's like, they're all not great, but that first one is just so loud yeah. and terrifying <laughs> that I just, <laughs> it was, it was super unsettling. Yeah. Who, who would be like, you know what? I want that. I want to shit my pants every time my grandmother Whoa. talks. Like, like, <laughs> I need an authority figure that just makes my ears bleed when she talks to me. You know? <laughs> I mean, maybe some really bad kids need that. So it, it sounds uh, like when Andy Samberg like does the falsetto of like, you know, like a woman's voice. I don't know. It just seems very. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the kids start deciding like maybe they want to recreate their mother. Or at least like sort of recreate with some of the same features and everything. And again, Anne's like, wait a second. You can make her look like my mother. He's like, yeah, the salesman. And she's like, I don't I don't want that. I hate my mother and runs out. She wants nothing to do with this. Yeah. And then the dad uh, goes out after her. And so the two kids are left in the showroom and that's when they pick all the pieces out yeah yeah just shoving body parts down the chute and you get uh you know you get the salesman just nodding in approval yeah at them shoving body parts down the chute as you do (laughs) that's you know that's what happens um yeah yeah Yeah, so the next day um the kids are out playing in the yard and this old lady approaches the house and uh i mean you're assuming it's going to be the the grandma that they picked out but the kids aren't quite sure until again, the brown eyes that Tom was obsessing over as being marbles. Uh, he recognizes them. Yeah. And so they have this awkward conversation, which I, I'm going to point out that, um, that the actress, uh, that played the grandmother, um, uh, Josephine Hutchinson. I like that. No matter weirdly enough, she has kind of a charm to her through the whole episode. It's not, I I don't really care for the story, but I kind of like her, which is good because you want to kind of like her. Um, the way she just walks so matter of factly towards the children. And then later when she's running, you know, 
through the street we'll talk about that it reminded me of like like proto terminator like t-1000 like robert patrick <laughs> like it's just you know like very just like point a to point b the way she was like just moving her arms is like it felt like you know have you seen these kids type of thing I, I i really it was in her mind like this is how a robot would walk i'm like that's true because i've seen it yeah but she she does seem genuinely kind and she does seem genuinely like she cares about these kids. Mm-hmm. So there is a nice balance between the robotic performance and that kind of kindness that uh, she gives off in this episode. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's amazing, but I think it it's, I, I think it's, it's good enough. It could right? she could have easily like turned, turned everybody off to the episode. And I, and I, 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 she was warm enough and that's the point. Um, yeah. so then she goes to the whole thing of like, uh, you know, the kids don't believe her. She hands them a turnkey. Well, like, well, wind me up. And the one kid's like, robots don't run off of wind up. They run off electricity as if that's a joke. And they laugh. And then, um, I forget the order in which does she do the whole thing where she holds her hands up to play the audio back to them or she does the marble thing next, but either way, it's one of the two. She can use her hands to like replay sound to their ears and then yeah, she, she, magic she, up. yeah, she does that. And then there's the whole kite bit yeah, where um, she shoots the string out of her hand or whatever happens there. I wasn't quite sure. Yeah, I wrote my notes. She is full of kite string. We didn't know that until that yeah. moment. Like she's 80, like a really playful Spider-Man or something. Yeah, no, she, like just like, I got kites. Yeah. 80% <laughs> kite string at 20% robot parts. That's really, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then. You know, Anne's in the background, still reluctant to this whole situation, and she's kind of trying to prove to Anne like this isn't a bad thing, and she's she's cl- kind of playing towards Anne as she's appeasing the two other kids. So she does the kite thing, and then she has the two brown—I'm assuming brown marbles—out <laughs> for Tom, wouldn't just that, because he's obsessed with these brown marbles. Wouldn't that be the dick move, just to make a different color marble appear? Like, like after all, oh, that, these are yellow. Yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. win anything with so these. So let me rephrase: she's seventy-five percent kite string, twenty percent robot parts, and five percent marbles. That's what she's made of. Uh, um, but but I, I I put in my notes here. Really dumb joke. I'm front selling it. You think Anne mistrusting Grandma would have made her suspicious of Ash on the Nostromo? I just feel like she had early interactions with the robot that she should have been able to sniff it out and know that bad things were going to happen later. Yeah. Well, based on the end of this episode, um, the she, robots gain her trust back. That's so true. She, so yeah. So she trusted uh, what Ian Holm is that who uh, is, is Ash. You know, he, so. nothing bad's going to happen to him. He's probably just full of milk and marbles. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so space kites. <laughs> space uh. kites. That was the original working title for Alien was space kite, and they're like, "That's dumb. We should move on to something else." <laughs> they're like, "How about Star Beast?" They're like, "That's better, but how about Alien?" Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and runs away. She's still reluctant. Um, so we cut to the next day. Tom is riding his bike home, and he comes in the driveway, and there's a new car out there. So. They all want to go for a ride in it. At least uh, Karen and Tom do. And the dad says he's going to take him to the soda fountain. But he finds out that Anne doesn't want to come out of her room. She wants to stay behind. She's still still having trouble. So there's a, there's a moment with uh, Josephine Hutchinson and his grandma where she's talking to the dad. She's telling him, like, kids are very complicated. And eventually she'll accept me. I just have to 
it's it's not about her mind. I have to gain my way into her heart. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole conversation about that. And um, Anne comes down and has some words with Grandma, basically saying, like, I don't want you here. You're not a real person. You're a machine. And um, you get a little bit more insight into Anne dealing with the death of her mother, saying that her mother said she loved her and that she lied and eventually just runs out of the house and runs away. Yeah. I like that the dad was like, she's done this before. <laughs> yeah. Like she, she won't go far. It's fine. Yeah. But uh, grandma goes and uh, chases her down T 1000 style. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, drives the semi truck after you know. Yeah, when she turned to semi liquid metal, I was like, "Whoa, what is going on here?" <laughs> uh, really good effects for this for this year. <laughs> yeah, no shit, right? So yeah, she she just makes a beeline for for Anne, who's in a park, and um, there's this whole thing where she uh, is they try to talk to her, and then Anne ends up like running away from her and going out into the street, and this is when you get the van driver that's rushing out like he's driving it doesn't see her and uh the the, the gr- grandma which by the way we didn't even mention the whole thing about her name where it's like what is my name and everyone's like grandma and she's like what is my name and i wrote ms go away that's what i was hoping her name would be but not really uh so <laughs> well, she, before yeah. she steps in the street there's that whole conversation where she says like uh, kind of give a little bit more that she believes that her mother yes left her because she and died. it wasn't necessarily yeah. that she let herself die and she she lied to her so yeah she steps out in the street and at the same time there's a van pulling around the corner and uh grandma runs out there pushes Anne out of the way and ends up getting hit by the van which is the worst day of work for this van uh driver so ever my my question is do you think it's the same guy that was driving the car in a passage for trumpet that hit jack klugman like, do you want to believe, like, this guy just can't not hit people in the roadway. the next day. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, I like that. Um, So, you know, Anne sees kind of what happens. The dad comes over and, like, you know, he's, you know, making sure she's okay. Uh, and then there's this bit where, uh, much like a Terminator, uh, Grandma, like, she mo- starts moving her fingers and there's this like, music cue to go with her fingers. And the way she gets back up is very robotic and... It's effective. I'll give it that where I'm just like, you can't stop grandma Terminator. And she yeah. gets up, like she gets up in the, in the yeah, with, yeah, with different music. That would be kind of a terrifying <laughs> scene. You just hear that. Dun, 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 dun. It's like, Oh shit. She's coming back. You know, um, <laughs> she's like, I must wipe you out and make sure that you have a sandwich. You look hungry. Uh, so the dad is like, no, no, look, grandma's okay. She's okay. And then all of a sudden, Anne you know, after carrying all this baggage about her mother abandoning her is fine and now loves grandma. <laughs> and then, and then she goes on to psychoanalyze the dad. And he's like, he's, she's like, your, your mother left early too. And he's like, yeah, how'd you know? Like, wow, I'm glad grandma figured all this out. And now they're happy family and they're all running home through traffic to go have a Sunday or whatever. Yeah. They're going to go home for lunch and yeah. they race each other home. Yeah. And, I- uh, Everything is fine. Oh, the whole thing too. She's like, you know, like, are you going to leave? She's like, no. And are you, you know, like basically grandma said that her job is to live forever, which I know she's a robot, but just think about that as a kid where like someone tells you like, no, I'll be here forever. You're just delaying the thing that you just tried working through. Like the whole, like people leaving, <laughs> like, no, <laughs> I am here forever. You know, 
Um, so yeah, they run home for lunch or whatever. And then we get, uh, like this is with four minutes to go in the episode, by the way, we get Serling like doing another mid episode narration, which we've not had since season one. And this will not happen ever again. in the original series. Yeah. Thank God. Cause this, this whole ending is so awkward and rushed and feels pieced together. I, I didn't like it. Um, so he gives this narration about how she was everything to them and she basically taught them everything they need to know. So everything they experienced while growing up reminded them of their grandmother. Um, so then we get after that narration, you get a kind of epilogue with um, with the kids grown up now and the grandmother's leaving. And they're going off to college, so she has nothing else to do, even though that she said she would be there forever. So, yeah, right? She lied. Yeah. Yeah, so they asked what's going to happen to her, and he, kind of a it's kind of depressing moment where she says, you know, she might be taken apart. She might be sent to a new family um, or or whatever. She doesn't quite know what's going to happen to her, but they ask, you know, like what will happen to all your memories and everything. And she says, she's going to go to a, uh, a room, basically a room full of souls. Yeah. Which is also nightmarish. <laughs> and, uh, I, I'm so glad we didn't have to see that at the facsimile <laughs> <laughs> yeah. limited store. Like, uh, I want to believe it's adjacent to the conveyor belt with all the body parts. I want to believe it's like you just hear this room full of grandma souls just talking to each other, you know, about how much they love their grandchildren. They're like, let me show you pictures. And there's just a worker just trying to put, like, arms on and, and like, eyes into something, you know, and like the entire time. That's, that's the story I want to see is the person that works at the factory that has to listen to the soul room. Yeah, because I forgot it's all elderly women. So it's <laughs> yeah. Let me let me show you my grandkids. It's like no 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 no. Let me show you my grandkids. Where where do you think they? So are these? So I I guess they're artificial intelligence created as souls, right? Yeah, I guess. But, but even I mean, then, she does the whole thing of like, yeah, maybe I'll stick around for like a hundred years or whatever she says. And then I'm hoping that one day I'll have real life. It's like, but you, that's the thing that kills me. It's like, okay, so this is a Pinocchio situation that you hope to become a real old woman one day. I mean, as we all do, um, you know, but it's like, but you already have everything here. Why do you need that? It just, it's a weird thing. Yeah. And the transition happened so quick. Cause she's, she's so, she seems so okay with the idea of being taken apart and putting into that soul room <laughs> and like sharing her, her experiences with the other souls and AI or whatever. Um, but then immediately like changes that she says she wishes she's, she'll be real one day. Yeah. So it's just it, like, <laughs> don't, don't, I, I'm pretty sure you just said you understood the fact that you're, you are artificial. <laughs> So I, I don't know. I, I like the, I like the idea because it would basically be AI and like a, like a profile amongst other profiles and they'd be talking. It'd almost be like a hard drive like full of like like you you probably have a bunch of movies on a hard drive. It'd be like if they all just talk to each other. Like it, it would be a weird conversation, right? But then all of those movies talking to each other made a real movie. <laughs> a real movie. Like, like together <laughs> and like <laughs> one day I come home and a DVD comes out of my uh, DVD burner. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and all of the yeah. movies on my hard drive got together and made their own movie. Like that's basically all, what it's saying. Yeah, all I know is it'd be very Italian and very action heavy. That was, yeah, it would, <laughs> it'd be a very multicultural cast. I can say that. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, but it was just it was. Uh, like a weird like thing, but then they give her a human moment in a weird way where she sends all of the, the grown up kids upstairs. Cause she's like, I hate goodbyes. And then she leaves and that's the end of the episode, you know? And that's, that's it. Um, this is, this is a weird one. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's good. Cause I don't really think it's good. I think the imagery in the middle of the episode is the best I've seen in a lot of episodes. And it, it just frustrates me because it goes, and I don't even think that they, when they were shooting this, they're like, you know what? We're going to make this like dark and horrific. I think they're just trying to visualize what a body part showroom would look like and make it appealing, which I think makes it even worse. Like, and in, in the sense that there was no bad intentions here, but yeah. Yeah. Like it, with the music and everything, it kind of seemed like they were going for a whimsical feel. Yeah. Um, but having an all black, set with just tables full of body parts was probably not the best way to do whimsical. No, um, I don't think so. Having what reads as black roses with eyeballs in it is not whimsical at all. Yeah. Yeah. But with like the music and everything and the kids running from table to table with this like sense of wonder, <laughs> it was just, it, it was, there was a stark contrast between what they were trying to put across and what they were showing you on the screen. <laughs> Uh, but I'm I'm glad they did that because it's definitely the thing that's going to make this episode stick out in my mind forever. Like this is definitely one you're not going to forget uh, <laughs> problems and all. Um, if they wouldn't have done that, I think this would have been very forgettable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- there are good ideas in this. Like I and I know um, Bradbury eventually went back. Uh, I think it was seven years later. He ended up releasing a short story. And there were changes. It was set more in the future and everything. I didn't get a chance to read it. So um, the kind of detailed changes that I uh, I heard about, it was more set in the future. A um, few more scenes kind of with dialogue, with the grandma and the differences between being human and being artificial. Um, I, I think there are changes between, I think there are two sons and one daughter and it just uh, stuff like that. But I don't think it was too much different, but I think having some of the stuff fleshed out a little bit more would help this because the pacing in this episode seems like they rushed to get to the story with the grandma and then they wrap it up really, really quick at the end. Yeah. But, I'm, but the yeah. middle is they take their time at the factory and they take their time with the introduction of the grandmother, but everything else surrounding that, is so rushed and feels so forced that it just comes across as awkward. Like they don't know what they're trying to do with this. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's just, it, uh, we, we talk about this often. Um, and, and I, I'll admit as we are very, very, very close to the end of season three, I've been going back and revisiting our thoughts on the previous episodes of the season. There's been a lot of times where there's good skeletons, but like for the stories, but maybe not the best execution. And I think this is what this suffers from, where you could have had an interesting story of what does it mean 
if you want to be a parent to your kids and care about them, but you're not able to provide them everything they need and you bring an artificial intelligence into it. I think that that's a, you know, even though they didn't have the, you know, the idea of what AI is, then this is basically that. And that could have been explored from the jump. Like you didn't need the dressing down of Nedra at the beginning. You could have set this up with, you know, with the dad going off to work and with the electric grandmother already there, you could have had that dynamic already in place and you could have spent much more time living in this world, but it just kind of it just kind of pisses it away, and that's very frustrating. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like if they would have spent more time with like the AI or you know what it, what it means to be human and everything, I think it would have resonated even more now. When I mean, most kids are being raised by a tablet <laughs> half the time. You know, you go to restaurants. <laughs> And you just see kids on tablets and everything while the parents are eating. Um, I, I I think you there would have been a point poignant statement even still today with this. I want and to I see, think I think maybe the short story does deal with that a little bit more. I just want to um, see an like an updated version of this with like a really like heartfelt intelligent Roomba that raises three kids <laughs> while the dad's out. I was thinking of the Brooklyn Nine Nine episode where they have the uh, the robot with the tablet stuck to the top <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was brooklyn 99 right where um, it's like pushed down the steps i think it's community where they had the, oh, community. the, the, the that's rival right. that's right because they let the convicts like wander the campus with like a that's what it with was. An and iPad. it gets pushed down it the robot gets murdered yeah it was definitely community <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's even an episode of bob's burgers where tina's stuck in her room and she ends up using something similar to that to hang out with uh all her <laughs> her schoolmates and it turns out like um oh jimmy jr it actually talks more to the tablet than to her. So she just stays in her room and makes sure that the, 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 you know, the segue with the, the tablets always around Jimmy jr. So she can have all the conversations that she wants. Cause he just, he, it's a disconnect because he's talking to a screen as opposed to her. So yeah, I think that would resonate a lot more. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, though I do like the fact they pulled that Walt Whitman, uh, title from the poem. Uh, Bradbury did just because the whole poem is talking about like um, the connection between souls and human bodies and a connection between people and everything and what it is to be human. But it doesn't necessarily deal with like robots or anything, obviously. <laughs> um, it got weird I, with I the think room it's kind of funny that he pulled that um, just having that uh, it's it's telling the same thing in a different way. Yeah, I it, guess basically. It, it's weird that the poem ends with this room full of grandma souls talking to each other, though. I didn't <laughs> yeah. see that happening. Yeah, I don't know how Walt Whitman came <laughs> up with that in the 1800s. <laughs> Very forward thinking. All right. So um, uh, I have some information here. This is like, we'll th- take a minute to kind of get through it in terms of like the, the fallout from this episode. Uh, did you have any other notes about like the actual story on plot? Because I know there's some production details that I think are worthy getting into. No, that's that's most of my notes are about production details. Okay. So first and foremost, the most superficial thing is that the exterior of this house is the same one from the previous episode, Young Man's Fancy, which I think is kinda kinda funny how it just showed up in like the way that they televise these episodes that it's the same house. But the interiors are different, but the exterior is the same. So I thought that was interesting. So um Bradbury had actually a couple of different scripts that were bought by Serling for production for the Twilight Zone, but they were basically unfilmable there was one called here here there be tigers which is this fantastic story of these like spacemen going to this planet that could meet every like whim and there's all the stuff going on they're like yeah we don't have the budget for that 
And then, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, I guess this one was the first one he submitted. Yeah, I sing the it, body lecture. And it was rejected initially. Um, cause he sent it back. I certainly didn't think it was that great. And then, <laughs> well, he just said it had some problems that needed to be worked on. And he said, here was it, uh, and on May 18th, 1959, certainly returned the, the teleplay with a heartwarming and respectful, uh, rejection. I'm returning. I sing the body electric, which you will very likely have use for yourself. I rather imagine that you'll use it. You'll make me sorry as hell as I didn't grab it while it was available. So it's a very gentlemanly thing to say, here you go back. It, I'm going to regret this, but we can't use it right now. So then fast forward a little bit, uh, with other scripts that Bradbury submitted, uh, they just, you know, you couldn't make it happen. Um, so Bradbury revised his 59 draft of icing the body electric and resubmitted it again. Uh, but Sterling in one letter to Buck Houghton confessed that it needed more work and he had no heart to personally alter, revise, or improve on a master's privilege. So Sterling respected Bradbury's output. Uh, when production for the third season of Twilight Zone started, Sterling began running out of ideas. He admitted this fact to a newspaper columnist many times previous and, and so in desperation began pulling out old concepts and plot ideas and fleshing them out into feasible scripts, including the revised script for Bradbury's. Production uh, went into, into the script in October, but after viewing the rushes, both Houghton and Sterling confessed that the film either needed to be refilmed or re-edited with additional footage. So we've talked about this previously, where uh, the, at the beginning of season three, Sterling described himself as a, a sack of potatoes, like, like dying in the sun or whatever he says, <laughs> like left out to rot. Um, and I know, I know I've been harsh on the second half of season three, uh, and, but I feel like it's evident because Sterling was just so pressed that this is a story that he felt needed work twice, but he had no other options. And there's that professional relationship he had with, with Bradbury, which I'm sure you'll talk about a little bit, but it's like, he was trying to like appease the Bradbury thing where Bradbury accused him of taking a couple of his stories and re retro fitting them into his own works. And then also try just to, just to get through this production order of 37 episodes and it shows. And, uh, with, with them and with him and Houghton saying this needed more, this explains the beginning of the episode with Nedra, which that was not the original actress to play the role. Um, and I'm sure you have notes about that. Yeah, so they initially had James Sheldon as the uh, the director when they started shooting this. They put this into production in uh, October 1961, I think it was. Yeah, October 1961. Um, they were unhappy with Josephine Hutchison's performance and just they they thought it needed more work. Um uh, they ended up going back and reshooting most of this episode uh, in February of 1962. So by that point, James Sheldon was out. Um, June, what was her last name? I'm sorry. The, the original Nedra? I didn't actually put that in my notes. Uh, June Vincent, uh, actress, was supposed to play Aunt Nedra. And both of them were unavailable. So they had to bring in uh, Doris Pecker as Nedra to replace her. And they reshot all that stuff at the beginning. And I think they've reshot some stuff at the end with the adult kids. Um, so it kind of explains why this feels like a little disjointed episode. Yeah. So um, 
actually, here, I'll give you the choice. Do you want to hear Bradbury's take on the episode, or do you want to hear other writers for The Twilight Zone give their opinion of Bradbury before I get into the fallout from this? What do you like? Um, let's hear... I want to hear Bradbury's take on it. Okay. I, I know what it is, but I want well, to, well, I want to then, hear. Then I'll give you a little bit of redemption after this. So, all right. Okay. So, all um, right. This is in the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. The first thing I read was from the Martin Gramps Jr. book, The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, which is an amazing resource. And this encyclopedia has been really great, too. It's just that sometimes it's like actor was in Twilight Zone. Um, great. So um, let's see here. Um, when Bradbury was talking, uh, to author Mark Phillips, whoever that is, I seen the body electric uh, turned out okay, but they took out the most important scene. In my script, the father asks the electric grandmother, why are there electric grandmothers? She gives him a moment of truth. She can do something no mother ever can. She can pay attention to all the children equally. Only a machine can do that. And since the father may never find a new wife, somebody has to look after the children. The electric grandmother uh, is the substitute for the mother that isn't there. When I saw that the scene was cut from the episode, I was furious. I called Rod the next day and said, for God's sake, why didn't you tell me? He apologized and said that there hadn't been time to film it. I said, I had all of my friends come over to the house and we sit down to watch the show. And the most important scene's gone. I don't want to work on your show anymore. I told him that I couldn't trust him as a producer. Uh, so... <laughs> Bradbury wasn't the only one unhappy with the episode as co-director Jim Sheldon relates on icing the bioelectric, which was a great story by Ray Bradbury. I didn't agree with the casting of the robot and I was never happy with the show because she was all wrong for it, but they kept returning to it all the time. So I it's like, but they keep returning to it all the time. So I shut up. It was the only sour note I had on all the shows I did for them. I like that Bradbury had like a, like a watch party for this episode and then yeah. was pissed. I just, again, I talk about this dinner party scenario. I want to believe <laughs> that he just sat in like his big, like overstuffed easy chair, like leather, leather back chair, like in front of the TV, which is what, maybe what eight inches or whatever the TV was at the time. And yeah. he had people over having a good time. And then when that scene didn't happen, people just notice him getting pissed. And then eventually everybody just kind of quietly leaves at the end of the episode. He just sits there with his drink in hand and just <laughs> smoldering. I feel like that's what happened. Well, he had the uh, the party, the viewing party, because everyone assumed he would have worked on the Twilight Zone earlier. Yeah. Like Serling assumed he would have because they were longtime friends as he was developing the show. Um, he kind of looked up to Bradbury as being like, a major influence on this because most of the writers that were working on the show, including Serling uh, were big fans of Bradbury and kind of looked up to him and uh, kind of took a lot of his style into their own work. Yeah. So there were, I mean, I think we talked about it. There were a few episodes that actually had references to Bradbury's name. I think the one was walking, Walking distance, yeah. I think Walking had, distance yeah. had a uh, Bradbury reference, and I think the other one was uh, a stop in Willoughby. Mm -hmm. um, it is, so yeah. Serling was throwing these things in as kind of like a nod of uh, respect to him, and he thought like one day he uh, Bradbury is going to be working on the show with me, and Bradbury even assumed so as well. I mean, obviously he was submitting scripts all the way back to season one in 1959. Um, but for some reason or another, you know, the, the teleplays just weren't quite working. Uh, nothing, nothing ended up happening. So when it finally came time that the biggest sci-fi television show on TV was working with one of the most popular sci-fi authors in the country, 
uh, it was a big deal. And so everyone was excited and Bradbury himself was excited and ended up throwing this watch party only to have it go down in flames. <laughs> it just, it, but you know, there was this buildup because, uh, you know, Bradbury throughout the seasons was kind of calling Serling out, uh, for plagiarizing stories, for taking ideas from him and other authors and it was slowly building up throughout all these seasons. And obviously with the uh, <laughs> um, him refusing three of his scripts, counting the first uh, um, at the first uh, I sing the body electric teleplay that he sent in. Um, there was definitely frustration in there that Bradbury wasn't letting on. And when they ended up cutting the scene out and everything, it was just the final straw and it ended up there. It ended their working relationship and their friendship. Yeah. So, so Bradbury went on, like I, I kind of teased at the beginning of the episode, it, there was a lot of interviews and he spoke pretty candidly about how he felt about Twilight Zone <laughs> and Serling. Yeah. Uh, Serling <laughs> didn't really ever say much about, about Bradbury outside of like that he was a major influence on the show and that uh, he loves his work. So uh, I, I mean, I love Bradbury. I, I think he's justified in certain ways with how he feels about this episode. Um but I also uh, I also agree with Serling. I I I feel like Serling. Um, it it was impossible to not have some of these ideas be recycled mm-hmm. uh, in the sci-fi genre. It just it's impossible. And some of the claims that uh, Bradbury is making about ideas that were taken from him sound like they were like basically kernels that he possibly had gotten from his stories yeah but i I mean it's like a man walking through an empty city like (laughs) with walking distance that he claimed they ripped off of one of the short stories from the martian chronicle it's like that was it it was a man walking around an empty city nothing else in the episode (laughs) had any resemblance to uh bradbury's story so there was definitely uh something going on in bradbury's head uh, between him and Serling. Maybe it was jealousy. Maybe it was uh, frustration. I, I don't know. Yeah. So probably never know. Uh, two, two things I'll add on here. One, you're right. When uh, Serling has said that his, his uh, favorite or most influential science fiction writers were Bradbury, Isaac Asimov and Robert A. Heinlein. So he was on record stating that. So here is the somewhat redeeming thing about Bradbury. And I'm, I, that sounds like he was just a complete jerk that no one cared about. No, but, like I said, yeah. I, I definitely see where the frustration, yeah. and you know, you've spent your whole life honing your craft and writing, uh, sci-fi and everything. And Serling comes along and, uh, gets the sci-fi show it becomes like the biggest thing in the world (laughs) (laughs) you know the guy never really worked within the genre before that um it it, i could see where the frustration would come in so you you can't blame the guy yeah so uh so from the third book i have so this is a rare trifecta where i got information from all three so congrats achievement unlocked so from the twilight zone companion from uh mark scott sacree there's a quote from richard matheson here that he actually wrote in uh, one of uh, beaumont's uh, story collections called the magic man he says it was ray who uh helped both chuck and myself on the initial steps of our writing careers as he helped others uh help as he had helped others i was living in brooklyn at the time just graduated from college and ray was highly generous in his correspondence and encouragement it meant a good deal to me. Chuck, fortunate enough to be living in Los Angeles, had a more personal contact with Ray and accordingly enjoyed an even closer communication and a greater proportion of encouragement and inspiration. I know that it meant a great deal to him as well. So 
he had a good relationship with two of the major contributors to the Twilight Zone. Maybe not Rod, but with Beaumont and Matheson. So, I, I you know, credit where credit's due. Yeah. And uh, it, I, I read a quote. Um, I think it was from Charles Beaumont. So I was always excited. Uh, it was just kind of talking about uh, authors coming out against Serling for stealing ideas and plagiarism and all that. And, uh, <laughs> and kind of talking about that jealousy that I was speaking about with, um, with Bradbury and him, but Charles Beaumont in the 1959 issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, uh, had an article with Charles Beaumont. And he said, is it any wonder that we scoffed? What did Rod Serling know about the field anyway? Sure, he could riff off an occasional Emmy-winning Playhouse 90 script, but did that give him any right to invade our uh, dimension? A- answer, yes. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> it's it's funny to see, like, those other authors, um, like, come out in support of Serling, being like, you know, he may have recycled some ideas, but there was definitely a skill and a craft to what he was doing that was bringing uh, freshness to the genre uh, that was otherwise not really getting into the mainstream. Well, and he treated it seriously and it got more eyes because it was a TV show. Like if this is the guy that got this, like got people exposed to all these authors, like that's, yeah. that's a good thing, right? So yeah, it's still uh, exposing. I mean, I, I had never read Charles Beaumont before we started going through the twilight zone episode well, by episode. And even, even, so I mean, yeah. he's still introducing people to these authors and, and tipping my hand. Cause I know you've not watched the most recent episode of the new twilight zone, uh, six degrees of freedom. The spaceship's called the, the Bradbury heavy. So yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> it's there. Like there's a lot of like, not that people aren't aware of Bradbury at this point, but it, it, you know, this is the one of the access points for people to be like, what's that mean? Let's check it out. And if it wasn't for me digging into the Twilight Zone, I wouldn't have discovered Richard Matheson. Same thing with you with Beaumont. So, yeah. Yeah, like, or Harry Kuttner or Henry Kuttner. Like, there's so many authors that are not necessarily the big ones like Matheson and uh, Bradbury that you would know. Like some of these other ones and uh, George Clayton Johnson mm-hmm. and all these people like I would have no idea who they were if it wasn't for the show. So there, there's got to be some credit there. And Serling himself, like I I don't think there's anything to scoff at in his writing on no. the show, because when he's firing on all cylinders, like he's he's up there as far as I'm concerned with the greatest. I like that you did not mention Earl Hamner in that conversation. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe his time's or, coming. Uh, I don't know. Or uh, Manly Wade Melman, Wellman. Like, that's somebody, <laughs> oh, like, I'm still trying to hunt down that's, his that's uh, a good Monster pull. Hunter book. Yeah. Um, and uh, who, who wrote the, the, was it the John Thunstone stuff? Who was that guy? That was Manly Wade okay. Wellman. Yeah, I'm still trying to find that. That book is going for so much money. <laughs> All right. So, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, do you have anything else about the episode? I know it seems like the the world around this episode is much more interesting than maybe the episode itself. Yeah, no, I think we covered pretty much everything uh, I wanted to get to about it. All right, let's just read the twist. <laughs> that the electric grandma would win all of them over one. Yep. Yeah, I I totally agree. Uh, that's why I kind of laughed before we went to the horns there. Did, did you like my uh, Did you like my dramatic pause? Because you were like maybe like, what's he going to give it a five? Like, what's going on? Is she? Yeah, no. she's, she's full of string. That's a five. I didn't see that coming. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah, I, I 
this episode is not great. <laughs> no, um, um, the title's amazing, it, and I just it's Bradbury, so I thought there was a big shadow, and for whatever reason, I thought that there was more Bradbury episodes. I you would you would think that would be the thing, right? So I was like, oh, this will be the first. Oh, it's the only. All right. Yeah, but as we find out, uh, things exploded <laughs> between them pretty uh, fantastically. So. Yeah. Um, I, now we get the story of why Bradbury never worked on Twilight Zone again. Bradbury's just outside of uh, Sterling's house saying fire to his car. Be like, I'll give you Fahrenheit 451. Just like, just <laughs> Setting the teleplays on fire. Yeah. <laughs> Something wicked this way comes. It's me. You know, sort of a bitch. Like, he just like gets mad. I, I don't. None of that probably happened, but it'd be amazing if there was like that. This blood feud between these two. Um, yeah. So that's going to do it for Icing the Body Electric. Uh, <laughs> before we get into the next episode, uh, Kevin, how can people find us? Um, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Um, you can email us or leave us voicemails at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Satchel, uh, pretty much anywhere you can find Facebook and newly uh, Spotify. I think I mentioned last mm-hmm. week we're now up on there. Um, so that's another easy way to listen to us uh, if you're on your phone and don't have access to your iTunes or something. Um, and outside of that, our Patreon is still available and we're covering episode five of the new series tonight. So if you're uh, on that, which is patreon.com slash strange highways, uh, you can listen to those episodes. Yeah, as little as $1, get you in, and you can check out our thoughts about the Wonder Kind tonight, which I cannot wait to talk about that episode. Even though I felt like we went much longer talking about this one, and I blame me for that, uh, we're going to have a fun talk about the Wonder Kind with John Cho and uh, Jacob, is it Jacob Tremblay? Whatever. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So yeah, next episode of the, the original series that we're covering, and I just got to pause because uh, I have, I have uh, been drinking some beverages, so one second. Uh all right, so just one second. I got. I had to get that out. So, all right. Um, there was no class there. Uh, then th- this fits perfectly what's coming. Uh, the next episode is called Cavender is Coming. And I'll read. Uh, <laughs> uh, Cavender is slang for a belch. Uh, so uh, next week on The Twilight Zone, two incredibly talented people join forces to show us what happens when an accident-prone, discombobulated lady with six thumbs and two left feet meets a hapless guardian angel who knows more about martinis than miracles. Ms. Carol Burnett and Mr. Jess White, uh, they're the choice ingredients to a very funny stew. Next week, Cavender is coming. Everybody Uh-oh. run. He's coming. Watch out, everybody. Everybody hide. Um, yeah. I'm nervous. Like so, I've, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have really on the, I shouldn't have belched on the recording, but I felt now that we know that Cavender's coming and there's a woman with six thumbs and two left feet. It the the belch was it was appropriate. That uh, might just be our review of the episode next week. <laughs> just one long belch. Uh yeah. <laughs> just just a heads up, this is the second backdoor pilot that, that was Sterling trying to fit in. The other one was Mr. Beavis. So um yeah. The, and also this episode originally aired with the laugh tracks. I don't know if that episode, when we watch it, is going to have the laugh track, but it had it originally. So we'll talk about that uh, next that week. Might be, that might be real awkward if they took it out. <laughs> have you seen those videos of the Big Bang Theory without the laughter? It's amazing. Oh, is, it, is it like 30 seconds of dialogue per it, episode? It's just them pausing between things they say, and it makes the non-jokes even worse. 
because it is it's oh yeah so yeah but it's Carol Burnett so that'll be fun like I like her maybe yeah, I do as well maybe so. this will be a fun episode so anyway that's going to do it for us for icing the body electric uh have a have a great week um and if you just want to have an electric grandma make sure you pick the choice parts off the the floor I don't know pick pick some good eyes and good arms and hair and just throw it down the chute that's that's all I got yeah, I, I got nothing. I don't know. Just go uh, go sit in your big leather chair and smoke some cigarettes angrily while watching Twilight Zone until next week. <laughs>